0: All those who are holding tickets outside are getting as fast as they can i'm speaking out to you ladies and gentlemen and i'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing where they reluctant to come in and we're going to start this very soon
1: welcome back to worthy i'm ben and i'm john and on this episode we're going to be talking about around the world in 80 days the 1956 best picture winner but we want to start the this episode talking about what the film started with, and that was a presentation of A Trip to the Moon by Edward R. Murrow. Uh, He presented this movie, which was a 1902 film that was filmed by Georges Millet. I hope I was pronouncing that right. My French, as John will know, is not great, but A Trip to the Moon is one of these... It's an iconic piece of cinema, of early cinema, of silent film. You may know it when you've seen a guy with his face painted like the moon. And then there's a ship that crashes into its eye that comes from a trip to the moon. It is a classic. It was featured heavily in Martin Scorsese's film, Hugo, which I think came out in 2010, 2011. Um, and it, it's very representative of where filmmakers were trying to go for, where I think a lot of people at the time were trying to get to. And it's, it's adventurous. It has so much, pizzazz and wow factor which for 1902 was incredible it was out of left field it, it really blew people's minds so to have this at the beginning of a best picture winner is a little questionable to me and so i just want to open up the floor first to john for just general idea general thoughts uh,
2: about trip to the moon itself so the french have always been ahead of us i think that goes without saying when it comes to cinema they've always been one step of ahead And I think that's been always an ongoing debate, and we've seen, like, the two separate countries, which are so dominant in in cinema, kind of, like, separate in terms of, like, the films that they love and the films that the audiences love. But I think it goes even further back to the very start here. This is 1902, so around this time we have Edison, who's also making cameras, and he's also shooting video, and he's shooting films, and what he would call films, but when we look back at them now they're very much like documentary like people leaving his factory or we talked about on uh, the animal abuse episode all about uh, them shocking and electrocuting an elephant so he was like filming things that were kind of very standard for us and when we look at A Trip to the Moon it feels like a full short film and it's science fiction and it really has the magic that we have come to expect from movies and cinema in general and I think that's really why I've always appreciated it and I think it's why it's always stuck around is it's a really simple concept the name describes exactly what the film's about and we jump right in to these I guess they're kind of like scientists in order to kind of like push this moon to or push this ship to the moon and it really shows us just how fun movie making is and the mind behind Millais and, and how he just could tell Uh, like by manipulating either the actors or the crew or the actual stage that he was creating something way beyond what Edison was in the U S and, and it was creating an actual like fiction and it was creating fantasy and it was creating this alternate reality that we really have come to love from filmmaking. And, it's it's fascinating to look back at this and seeing how they're doing transitions much like we still see today on like social platforms like tiktok like where people will frame themselves in the shot and then all of a sudden they'll step out and continue shooting edit that together it looks like they magically disappeared and i think that like is this is a perfect example of a film that uses that technique and really one of the earliest films that we have still uh, retained after so many silent films are lost in fires and over the years of just degrading film and we've lost a lot of silent films and it's so awesome that we still have a trip to the moon. And I just think it's a perfect example of an early film that really shows us what's possible in movie making. And I, I really love the moment where we see the, the ship kind of crashing into the moon's face and we see how it's almost like the camera is dying, but it was so early on that the camera literally couldn't move that they physically had to move the set itself. And by moving the set it made it look like the camera was moving. So it's like all those weird little like insider tricks they used to do. And it's just fascinating to think about. Like obviously it's crazy this is not digital, but they had no ability to go back and see exactly what they were looking at and to see whether it would work. It was just kind of trial and error and it's absolutely amazing that we've kind of come to it and we still have this piece of film and we still have this to show people and just show how far we've come now over a hundred and twenty some years later, it's absolutely amazing. It's incredible.
1: It's funny that you bring up the idea of film restoration and, pre- and preservation and honoring the, these early movies, because upon reading about trip to the moon, it definitely seemed like there were moments in time where we almost lost it completely, which was unfortunate, but it has been found over time. It, I, I don't know if we really got the full movie as it was probably presented in 1902, because of some you know, of some, you know, damages that could have happened to the film itself, some lost parts of it. But what we have in around the world in eighty days is this idea of adventure and seeking more and going around the world, literally, and and, and how that can spark ideas and imagination. And what you touched on about how the filmmaking process can seem so elementary at times of just, yeah, you bring the person to you, but it's also these tiny little details of of filmmaking that malay was did in this movie that i feel like could still be applied to for today uh, even as simple as the cuts of stopping placing somebody there they appear then cutting again they take him out of the frame and make him disappear in the edit it's so simple but it's so it feels so right and natural for how you would make a movie that it's honestly incredible
2: that they got it to look the way it did for that time you know what i mean yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's honestly it, it's like it blows my mind looking at this film and some of the other early silent films from the French and from Malay where it's there's so much costuming and there's so much built behind this and so much behind the scenery and the stages and then the fact that they built all of this all just for this one film to, to kind of throw it all away. And maybe that, like at the time you would have no idea that this would not be able to be preserved because you're thinking – Uh, within your time frame you're not thinking about how like oh this might be a lost medium at some point in time because it's barely even a medium like to try to understand what this was at the time it, it was literally probably magic to a lot of people to be able to even see images moving in front of people and then let alone that you're telling a story and also being so fantastical and and have it all look amazing and have it all like hold up still to this day where you can watch it and and find it kind of entertaining and, and watch it visually and and just kind of appreciate it for everything that it offers visually. It's, it's really astonishing how much we've kind of borrowed from just techniques in this film and how much we even see it today. And I always think of like Looper when I think of uh, a trip to the moon, because in Looper we have characters going uh, in back in time forward in time but when that happens they basically snap out of reality and very much in a trip to the moon when people kind of disappear or kind of suddenly disappear essentially it, it, it's a quick cut and they like disappear into smoke it's it's a really cool trick that it's like such a classic trick that we've come to know from magicians that is just perfectly brought to film and it's amazing how much we've kind of still continued to borrow and, and use a trip to the moon as a great reference point for the start of fantasy filmmaking really. Yeah, I'll take a looper reference <laughs> any day. <laughs> uh but yeah, I, I think that this movie
1: it it's, you know, a precursor to science fiction. It you know, it has aliens on there. I mean some of the ideas they had of like going to space is pretty ridiculous but it's also what it makes it so fun to watch and again like the the shot of the moon of, of approaching it and then hitting it in the eye is su- it's such an iconic moment and look and frame of early Hollywood and early film that it's sort of hard to deny how great and important it is and so that leads me to my next question which is is it almost cheap to slap this in, on the front of a movie and just to draw the comparison of well it's an adventure movie and you know It's this is you know A Trip to the Moon was loosely based off a Jules Verne novel And Around the World in 80 Days a Jules Verne novel So of course they would fit together But to me when I watch it it's like So you're going to take You're going to take 10 minutes out of your runtime, Out of a very long runtime, I might add To show this entire movie Just because You can just because you want to make that comparison It's not I, don't, I, I just find it to be just a
2: cheap way Of doing something It's a very direct comparison too, which is weird because it's, it's, you could watch this film and kind of like maybe put that together, how these are like an evolution of filmmaking, but to have it right on the front of your film and be like, this is our film, but it also is referencing a trip to the moon and we'll like show you a little bit of it and we'll show you a rocket taking off. And that is kind of our evolution into film. And not only have we advanced like 50 some years into the future, we also are now shooting rocket ships and like we are actually traveling and we, our future may end up to the moon. It's just like, is any of that really necessary for the story? Not really, not at all. It feels like something that you would do in like the beginning of like a documentary to kind of like show you and relate to your documentary and its subject, but it just doesn't really make any sense for a fiction film. And it, it definitely pulls you out of the actual story because it's like asking you the viewer to kind of like put the story in context and, and showing how it all like has come to forward and how much we've kind of traveled and, and pursued technology and adventure forward but it's just like not relevant to the story really other than yeah like you said it's a book loosely based on a trip to the moon or from Jules Verne's book uh from the earth to the moon by Jules Verne. Jules Verne so it just doesn't make much sense it, it like you could see the loose connection there, but it's like, why? It's not strong enough to like make any sense for it to kind of stay in the film, especially, like you said, with a three-hour movie.
1: Yeah, and it it makes the final product. Like, okay, so now is A Trip to the Moon a part of Around the World in 80 Days? Like, as thing as an Oscar voter, am I like, well, am I supposed to appreciate this old movie? Like, if a movie came out today and they put A Trip to the Moon, well, I guess Scorsese did do that with Hugo. But if they if he slapped it on the front of it, just said, this is a connection to this movie I like got inspiration from it and then never mentioned it again. I'd be like, okay, so I'm not going to give you merit for that. Like you didn't do anything. If anything, adding the Edward Murrow, like monologue over it <laughs> is kind of like you're ruining what this movie supposed to be. You're supposed to be like a fun, you know, silent adventure. And now you just have, you know, Murrow's voiceover on it and it's like okay like I, I don't want to hear this I want to watch this on its own I'd rather I come to this naturally instead of you telling me like okay like, you have to watch this and now watch this great movie but it's not really a great movie It, it it's actually pretty crappy and, and I get like if you want to talk from a technical aspect how like great and adventurous it is but then at the same time it, it to me it just feels so cheap and so just like you don't do this and, and it doesn't make this a good movie that's just you as the filmmaker think that this is necessary when it's not so I digress I think we're going to get more into this movie so let me ask that question to you John is Around the World in 80 Days worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1956 <laughs>
2: Around the World in 80 Days A Victorian Englishman bets that with a new steamship and railways, he can travel the world in 80 days. In
1: 1872, an English gentleman, Phileas Fogg, claims he can circumnavigate the world in 80 days. Met with skepticism, he makes a 20,000-pound wager worth about 1.8 million pounds today, with four fellow members of the Reform Club, each contributing 5,000 pounds to the bet, that he can make the journey
2: and arrive back at the club 80 days from exactly eight forty five PM that evening. Together with his resourceful French valet, Passepartout, Fogg travels around the globe, generously spending money to encourage others to help him get to destinations faster. Having reached Paris, they hear that a tunnel under the Alps is blocked. The Thomas Cook agent who assists them offers to hire or sell them his hot air balloon. Fogg buys it and they fly over the Alps drinking champagne. Blown off course, the two accidentally
1: end up in Spain, where we see a tabletop flamenco sequence performed in a bar. Later, Passepartout engages in a comic bullfight. Next, they go to Brindisi in Italy. Meanwhile, back in London, suspicion grows that Fogg has stolen 55,000 pounds, which is around 5 million pounds today, from the Bank of England. So police inspector Fix is
2: sent out to trail him, but must keep waiting for a warrant so he can arrest Fogg in the British-controlled ports. In India, Fogg and Passepartout rescue a young widow, Ayoda, from being forced into a funeral prior with her late husband. The three then travel to Hong Kong, Yokohama, San Francisco, and the Wild West. Reaching New York, they arrange their passage on a cargo steamship traveling to Venezuela. Fogg bribes the captain to go to England. Alas, they run out of coal mid-ocean, and the ship stops. Fogg buys the ship and then instructs the crew to take everything that burns, including lifeboats, to provide fuel.
1: They arrive in Liverpool, where, still with just enough time to travel to London and win his wager, Fogg is promptly arrested by the Inspector Fix. Detaining Fogg at the police station, the humiliated Fix discovers that the real culprit has already been apprehended by police in Brighton. Although Fogg is free to go, he now has insufficient time to reach London before his deadline, but has lost everything but the enduring love of Aota. Upon returning to
2: London, Fogg asks Passepartout to arrange a church wedding for the next day, Monday. Salvation comes when Passport Passepartout is shocked to be informed that the next day is actually Sunday. Fogg then realizes that by traveling east towards the rising sun and crossing the international date line, he has gained a day. Thus, there is still just enough time to reach the Reform Club and win the bet. Fog rushes to the club, arriving just before the 8.45 p.m. chime. Passport 2 and Iota then arrive behind him, shocking everyone as no woman has ever entered the Reform Club before. Around the World in 80 Days was directed by Michael Anderson with the Spanish sequences directed by John Farrow. Written by James Poe, John Farrow, and S.J. Perelman. Based on the novel by Jules Verne. Produced by Mike Todd. Music by Victor Young. Cinematography by Lionel Linden. Film editing by Howard Epstein, Gene Ruggiero, and Paul Weatherwax. Production design by Ken Adam. Art direction by James W. Sullivan. And costume design by Miles White. Around the World in 80 Days stars Floss as Passepartout. David Niven as Phileas Fogg. And Shirley MacLaine as Princess Aouda. So, uh, <laughs> around the
1: world in 80 days. I kind of wish this movie was around the world in 80 ways because then I could have <laughs> thought of 80 different ways I would have rather spent my time than watch this movie. You hate this movie, man. It's, it's pretty bad. It This one, um, we've talked about some stinkers before. I feel like we've had fun with stinkers before. We've had fun with the Broadway melody. We had fun with the Great Show on Earth. Um, but this one I don't there's no fun in this and usually you know I love getting to research these movies and really taking a deep dive and, and really getting to know the ins and outs of how the movie was made the storylines what other people think of story plot and, and big you know plot points and all that and I literally after I put all my notes down which wasn't as much as I'm used to which I was okay with because I knew that it wouldn't be too much I then realized that everything I put down as a note either had to do with the ending credit sequence, how this movie was made from the one technical aspect, which is the cameras. And that's not necessarily for a great thing. And how this movie was then shown as a road show and, you know, to audiences around the world. So nothing about the story, nothing about the acting, really nothing about scenes, lines, like I couldn't find anything that I truly enjoyed. (laughs) From those aspects, <laughs> which to me is really troubling, because I I love story, I love content, I love creativity, I love the ins, I I love all of that, and so just to be faced with three hour, I, I'll call it a movie, a three hour movie that really is just a, you know, was just meant for that can be shown in Todd AO in in movie theaters, and you know it can has all this crazy color and all these different cameos and this and that it has holds no water for me because it just falls so flat that there's not even like ways i think for us to really enter the story and really entertain the plot points like i really find it hard to really dive into this and really sink my teeth into a particular
2: scene or an actor because it just
1: (laughs) there's not much there
2: It's really funny because if you were just listening to us kind of tell a synopsis, it's not too far off in terms of like the length of some of the synopsis that we've read in the past. But it makes it sound like a full like fledged film. And with three hours, this is a very short synopsis because a lot of this film is just shots of them traveling, which is cool to see visually, I think. I mean, I think I'm definitely a little more positive on this film just in general than you are. I think across the board. I don't think I would ever like say you have to watch around the world in eighty days, but if you like a travel film, I think that's a big up for you. I think I wanted to even almost discuss that in the opening, but there's just there was multiple aspects to this film that I think would have been a good opening, and and I think part of it was this is really the first really travel film that we've really gotten to experience. I think you could look at. You can't take it with you as a kind of like a travel film it's not really about the travel more so just about the couple falling in love. And you mean it happened one night? Yeah, excuse me. Thank you. It happened oh, you one night. You can't take it with you. Still yeah. great. That's the opposite of a travel movie. It takes place <laughs> in like two locations basically. But I think okay, Thank you.
1: but to your point though, and and, and this Parks's idea is like you can't take it with you. It takes place in one setting and it does so much right for like one setting with a huge cast of characters of a lot of like well-known oh, yeah. people oh, yeah. versus this which has some of the, like, best, like, British actors of all time. Like, you know, you, you have Marlene Dietrich, you have John Gilligod, uh, you have Victor McLagan, all coming from, you know, that side of the water. And they're barely used for how they should be. Peter Laurie <laughs> is in this, and Peter Laurie is, like, it's almost borderline, like, racist, because you're like, are you supposed to be a Japanese oh my God. character? Are you, like, who are you supposed to be? You're there, then you're gone. And uh, so, yeah, so just the way that, you have all these different parts like working for you, and it does nothing with the movie. And um, actually, I think the biggest and and, and maybe this is where I want to start, because Philly Fogg, fog. I have the biggest issues with you, the <laughs> like, just humongous issues. Yes, you have all this money. Yes, you are able to travel in all these different and beautiful ways. But you spent three hours of this runtime, of this movie you spent 80 days just playing cards and just sitting on your boat paying for it (laughs) nothing else you did like there's no scene or dialogue you're like oh that like that was good like that was like funny like david niven i think just like showed up on
2: set was like oh i'm gonna just sit and drink tea today you got it (laughs) yeah it's probably the dream role you i mean maybe the long hours but even still he's not in every shot and he's not in the majority of shots so he wouldn't have to be on set for a lot of the days because a lot of it's even not about him and he probably got the biggest pay Check, maybe Conflas had a bigger one because he was a big draw in in Mexico. And I think he's the really shining star in, in terms of our three kind of main cast members. And Ben was just describing some of the other actors that are in there. And if you're wondering why we didn't mention them in the cast and crew, it's because literally every other character other than the three that we just mentioned are all cameos. We have the Reform Club who are all almost unnamed except for a few of the characters. And they're just there to kind of like keep us in in time basically keep us in check as to like how far along the journey is and like how much time they have left and just to them kind of like to shit on fog as if he's not going to make it on time so there's really just not that much other than those three characters and all the other characters that we do see are all cameos and I think at some point we'll definitely have to figure out who is our favorite cameo in the film and and kind of determine that but yeah phileas Fogg, played by uh, nevin is just He's just kind of a blank slate. Like, we don't really know much about him at all. Like, we know that he's just kind of like this witty British man who loves playing cards. And and maybe that's all we need to know and that's all I think we need to know. The rest is just like, let us take you on a roller coaster. And that's kind of how I viewed this film. It, it felt very much like a ride where even a lot of the shots felt like a ride where you they just kind of like mounted the camera on like a train or some moving uh, vehicle, whether it's like a helicopter or a plane, and just kind of let them film it, and you're supposed to sit in the audience with this big widescreen, seeing color and and beautiful like beautiful beautiful colors that are on screen and of these locations you can't go to and you've never been to, and it's supposed to be this exhilarating ride. But now, seventy years later, this is like it's it brings up the question like what is a fiction film, and how much of a story do you need in a film in order to be classified as a movie or a film or cinema? And this film I think is the first one that we've kind of come across where it's like, is this a movie? We talked a little bit about that previously with, you know, the greatest show on earth and that had almost documentary aspects to it, trying to describe the circus. And while this doesn't have that, it also is so loose in its storytelling that our story is as simple as we need to get back to the same exact point in 80 days. So, what do you think about that, Ben? Do you think we can like classify this as a fiction film because it has somewhat of a storyline to carry it through? Uh, I mean, I guess you could call it a fiction film, but it's
1: it's so loose in its plot and characters and development of those characters that you look at like uh, the greatest show on earth. You look at like you know Jimmy Stewart playing Buttons the Clown, and it's like. <laughs> that was a very good performance that had depth that had something to him and his story. Whereas like this, it's like, I don't know where the arc is like, yeah. Like what any of the characters? Yeah. Like yeah. fog has really has no confliction. Like you would think I have this huge bet and he could give, like, he's pretty confident he's going to do it. But it's like, why are you so confident? Why do you feel like you can do this? And then for honestly, like the big reveal of like, Oh well, the international dateline, like we we should have realized that, you know, this and that. And it's kind of like,
2: uh, okay, did you not think about that when <laughs> you're gonna travel? It does bring up funny questions as to like how you kept time and who has the right time and who is the arbitrator of the right time. You know, without a computer system, without actual digital clocks or anything who is the arbiter of time? Like who is the person who's going to tell you what's the accurate time? And that was a funny aspect to me. And it's clearly not supposed to be intentionally funny, but yeah, in terms of the end like that of them not realizing that they've passed, it just kind of like slows the film down even further to a halt because it's already three hours and you're already basically exhausted by that point. So you're like, just get on with it. Like, please tell me if he makes it or not. That's all I need to know. So it is frustrating, you know, and, and we're just following these characters bouncing around with no real arcs and you know some people they don't need it they just want to have like a fun ride and adventure and who cares if the characters change or have any sort of difference of opinion at yeah. the end but it's it's just not entertaining enough now 70 years later for it to be very intriguing i think something like the internet just kind of like destroys this film and it's it's a shame because you know there's probably so much effort and time and Looking up the film, it seemed to be a really, really difficult film in order to even kind of make this and and to film on a lot of the locations. And I think it really comes through for a lot of the locations they filmed on that they're not just complete, you know, messes when it comes to using the kind of back projector and using early green screening and and some how bad that looks sometimes in some of the films that we've seen. For example, Greatest Show on Earth. So, Ben, is there like a? I know you're not a fan of this movie. <laughs> you're not loving it, but was there a particular location that you thought, like, was your favorite in terms of the many various locations they visit? Uh, I,
1: I mean, I think we talked about this a little bit, I think, when we first finished the movie together, which was the depiction of, like, the American West and, like, how yeah. people, you know, look at that. But
2: then also there's a lot,
1: there's so much, so many racist things they do. Well, and, it's like
2: every location's racist. Yeah. Like, I, well, it's I, like you right, need to know that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> going a, a, into every it. Every
1: location's racist. But that <laughs> one was, like my god because uh what was it i think like mike todd yeah mike todd was concerned about the differences of skin color between the various native americans hired for the movie so he ordered a liquid dye that would make them all look uniform and then we're going to have them all in a big circle just doing a dance chanting and and chanting and And then cotton floss yeah and of course like they're all gonna go they're all gonna go attack someone and of, of course everyone's gonna look down upon them as like you know what they would call like these savages and and poking fun at it and you know what it's just dumb and it's so <laughs> unnecessary and it's so i said like, what's when, your favorite part <laughs> i i'm not talking about my well i'm talking about i, I like i like the the san francisco thing was like funny uh, because that frank sinatra election, in yeah. it but like also in like the same vein i really don't want to hear people today Complain about, oh, there's not enough character development. Spending, they wasted too much time. Go <laughs> sit and watch this movie and go waste your time. <laughs> because I, I don't know what it is about, like, some... Like, why it's so hit or miss for some movies? Like, why so pe- like so many people loved a movie, like, around the world in the 80s? Like, and I hate to bring The Greatest Show on Earth, because I kind of like The Greatest Show on Earth now compared to this. But it's like, <laughs> why do people go to those movies and be like, oh, this is great. This is great entertainment. This is what I love. And I don't know if that's because people didn't have enough, but like by 1956, you had a lot of good movies. You could base your entertainment, the way stories develop. You have so many things you can base off of. Why now is like this movie revered so well, especially when we get into the Oscars, like there's some pretty big blockbusters that year. And like this movie survived. Why? I mean, like it has the most in terms of the most looks and in and scenics and there's a lot of beautiful cinematography in this movie. I'll definitely give it that. But that then doesn't translate to a good movie. Like I could set up a tripod and film a sunset that's on freaking Hawaii of a <laughs> volcano going off in the background with a tsunami and beautiful waves, Everyone surfing in it. Does that mean it's a good movie? No, it just is like a cool shot.
2: Well, I think this is the results. And we've talked a little bit about this in the past couple of episodes. And it's I think the personally... I think it's the result of television and and trying to go bigger and and bolder and getting people out of their seats and and kind of getting people to go to movies. And it's almost like we're seeing this weird parallel in in today's films where it's about instead about, you know, going bigger and and bolder. It's about like nostalgia and and let's bring everything that you used to love back. And so that'll get you to go out of the theaters. And, And here it's like well, I can just watch, you know, the latest TV movie. Like we talked about Marty being based on TV movie. People are getting used to television. They're watching a lot at home. So it's like, how do we get people out of the theaters? These are three hour movies. When we get further down into the episode, we can talk about all the other best picture nominees. We're talking about really big over three hour, large movies. A lot of them all in color actually. And they're all mainly over three hours with your, your biggest stars Huge special effects, a lot of action, and around the world in 80 Days is like this big spectacle in terms of traveling, seeing the world, and and that's kind of like how I would try to view it personally to kind of get that point of view and, and what it would be like And instead of nowadays where it's like one of my favorite scenes and locations of the movie. It's not really any of the scenes that I loved so much, but seeing like the elephants and the fact that they ride one, and yes, it's there's definitely got to be a lot of animal abuse in this movie, and uh, as we talked about, it was kind of rampant, especially in this time where yeah. the films kept getting bigger and bigger. But, you know, if someone wanted to go see anything about elephants now, they would do one YouTube search and they'd be have like hundreds and hundreds of videos about elephants, about how they eat, when they travel, when they sleep, like literally as much as you could possibly learn about elephants, you could do it. But in 1956, it would be like you go to the library, you read a book, you see a couple pictures of elephants. Maybe if you're lucky, you can like see some you know a whole book about elephants and that's all you can get so when you get to the moment in this film and you're like oh my god our characters are riding elephants like this shot is like a train and we're going through elephants like it probably felt like so realistic to people and like fascinating so I I always try to do that with some of these films does that make the movie good and does that justify (laughs) any of this no I don't think so at all and I think it has only just kind of become more and more dated because of that but it's still kind of cool to see all these locations even though it's very racist, like we said. Oh my Every God. location they go to, it's like they have to be offensive. Because can we just say like, our, the, like <laughs> I'm not gonna say I would hate to say our, our favorite racist part. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh,
1: Jesus but Christ! But no, well, what's a, what's a different word to say that? Like, what's the part that's the most the, offensive? What's the basically? most offensive part that to? Oh my God, oh my God.
2: dude! I, uh, oh my God. I mean, the Shirley McLean thing is pretty bad. I mean, the fact that our main character, like would is supposed to be indian right like yeah and she's like she's shirley mclean who's like fairly white (laughs) yeah she's very white i mean she's she's very white so pale in this movie and just oh my god she's also barely a character like she just kind of follows fog around and is somehow like enchanted by his card stories which are the most boring fucking stories on the planet oh my god yeah it's actually funny because um apparently when this movie was shown it was shown for
1: like three consecutive years and I think that's mostly because Mike Todd, the producer, just had these grand ideas for how it should be shown. But the film was shown in Calcutta uh, in 1960, and the entire like sequence with Shirley MacLaine being rescued was cut from the movie. It was, the scenes <laughs> were of her being rescued from being burned alive because her husband in the story died, so now she got saved. Uh, which side note, really quickly right here, why was she so quick to fall in love with Fog if her husband just died, unless? They unless her husband was poor to her, but I wouldn't have known that
2: because they didn't talk about that. Because (laughs) she's just there. But (laughs) anyways, but anyways, I do actually know the answer to that. But yeah.
1: But anyways, she um yeah. So basically, in Calcutta, the entire sequence is cut, and then she's just there, and there's no reason. Like they give no reasoning for her being there. She's just there. (laughs) That's so confusing. (laughs) And honestly, like thinking about that in the movie, it's like, what
2: do you add to this plot? Nothing, Nothing, Just a, a beautiful face that you can kind of stare at. And for all the men that are getting bored because their kids are like having a great time. They're like, oh, pretty lady on screen. I'm I'm, I'm back in now. That's basically all she really adds to the movie, oh my God. which is unfortunate because she went on to have a pretty legendary, iconic career. And she's a pretty great actress from. Yeah, we're going to see her in two further Best Picture winners. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I will say they do somewhat explain that. And it's because. She was, like, away for some reason in the UK, and she was, like, made the wife of this, like, Egyptian prince, and because, or excuse me, (laughs) I just watched the Ten Commandments, so (laughs) I'm thinking Egyptian, of this Indian prince, and because he died, she was forced to go back and then to be, like, burned alive uh, with his dead body, as in tradition. I don't know if that's a complete (laughs) bullshit tradition they made up for this movie, but... Yeah, that that's the kind of explanation. So I guess it's like she hasn't been around him at all, and she's like, "Here's this fog guy who rescued me, so he's my lover now." Uh, I must have checked out. <laughs> that must have been like two hours and thirty minutes. It's in between it. fog telling a fucking card story, so I oh wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> uh, let's
1: uh, let's talk a little bit about just like dialogue and lines. Are there any lines? There's that stood out? There's. I'll give you one. This is the end. <laughs> The end
2: does have some some great lines. Yeah.
1: I honestly let's just talk about that scene and the ending because I we you wouldn't think that the ending would be this huge thing we'd want to talk about, but at the end of the movie, like, you know, they all realize like, oh shit, we have a few minutes to get back, and then they're all like rushing back to get there. Fog ends up in this like very weird you know, being stopped by I guess preachers and you know, some yeah some woman preaching to a group of people and he gets like stuck there and anyway, so he finally gets to the club. Gets in there and then uh, Shirley McLean's character enters and all the men in the reform club are like, my God, like can't can't have this. And uh, and Fox says uh, this is, his, you know, some of his last lines. He re- he says, you must leave, my dear. No woman has ever stepped foot in the club. And Aota goes, why not? And Fog goes, because that could spell the end of the English Empire. And then some slapstick comedy comes in with a curtain falling with past part two just standing there. And then one of the reform club members just goes, this is the end and it just fades to black and it just fades to black <laughs> and that's the, the ending end. of this entire movie is just them walking to the reform club and past part two just standing in the window and because of that
2: that signals the end of the english empire i do kind of love though that he walks in right as the bell chimes and it's like literally the last second and they're like well he is known to be a very uh <laughs> like prompt person yeah very prompt man and he walks in right when the bell rings that was so funny, and. Th- yeah, it's like takes way too long for them to get back to the UK and then for them to get finally back to the Reform Club. But before they get back to the UK, I do love <laughs> the the fact that he buys the boat oh, and then gets <laughs> them to burn literally everything in the boat is so ridiculous and goofy that I'm like, okay, this is like what the whole movie should have been. When they burned the mermaid, that was funny because the, so the, the mermaid statue on the front of the yeah, ship all yeah. the men were like, no, we need her. <laughs> <laughs> it sh- there should have been more goofy moments like that for sure.
0: But I
1: think like people thought this entire movie was goofy, like reading yeah, reviews definitely. And from that time, people thought this movie was fucking hilarious, that everything was a good gag, that it was so witty. And I just I don't know if it's the humor
2: from that time for the way everything was written. I feel like we get a lot of the jokes, though, from. These yeah, movies. a lot of it's like sexual innuendos and like a lot of past part two is all about him being like a ladies man, but always getting rejected. This movie so. really is just like past part two around the world in 80 days. It, it really is, because Fog literally does nothing interesting. In fact, he's not even the one who saves her. It's it's <laughs> two <Passepartout laughs> oh, <yeah>. who's pretending, <laughs> pretending to be the dead prince and then saves the princess from burning alive. So, yeah. and it, 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 you're but you're right. it was Fogg who who magically did it yeah, all. Yeah, and Fogg who took all the credit, you know? Ridiculous. Uh, absolutely ridiculous. It's uh
1: it's a pretty goofy movie. I will give it the merits for its cinematography. Let let's definitely talk about that cuz that was I think the most noticeably good thing about this movie, I'm not gonna say it's great, but it's good. What they used to make this film, they used Todd AO, which is a a high re- resolution widescreen film format that was similar to Cinerama, but it was Cinerama out of one hole. So Mike Todd had his whole production company. He created this whole, you know, filming technique where they only use one camera and one lens and one single roll of film instead of Cinerama, which used three to make this huge widescreen effect but I think unfortunately actually it's not I think I know and noticing it while watching it the way that Cinerama and widescreen formats are presented they're presented on a curved screen so when you're watching this movie the sides of the screen on on our you know I have a very nice 4k TV it's what I think it's like 55 inches it gets a really good picture but the
2: sides of it are just curved because it's not yeah, meant to be shown it. on such like a flat screen which is kind of fascinating. It's kind of like moving a document over to another medium and just not fitting exactly. It's a weird kind of like fascinating element of the overall film. But that is also something that I wanted to bring up in the beginning. But it could have been its own entire topic as well, which is all about frame rate because they essentially had to shoot this movie twice, right? Are we talking well, the Hobbit frame rate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that I mean that is a great example of like modern day filmmaking and try to kind of adjust film rate and. And mess around with it to kind of create the feeling of the film that you want to make. And the difference here was that they had to shoot the movie twice, once in 24 frames a second, which is kind of what we're used to. It's kind of like the cinema movie going standard, right? Yeah. And they also shot it in 30 FPS for this kind of bigger widescreen version that they were doing. And, you know, I couldn't even find information digitally about what version is even online. I'm, I'm assuming it's the 24 frames per second, the original version. I found it so fascinating because from my experience, I don't know about you, like, there's really not much of a difference uh, in terms of visuals from, like, 30 to 24. No,
1: there's really not much.
2: You might, like, reduce, like, the very smallest amount of motion blur, but it's, like, so minimal that you barely notice. And I know a lot of people in terms of, like, streaming, since I kind of do it and talk to people a lot day to day in my job, it's 30 FPS has almost become the standard for video and for live streaming especially. So it, it's kind of odd that we've made this kind of separation and it seemed to be specific because of the way they were filming it. And I can't even imagine having to film something twice. How, how long it already takes and how many takes it, it, it you, know, you have to go through in order to film one scene or one shot and then having to do it twice with a whole new setup. And I mean, camera, David, like, and David probably is having the time of his life. It's ridiculous that they, <laughs> that they did this. So do you think Constant Flaws had to fight the bulls twice? <laughs> I, I think about that. Like, it's absolutely insane. And I think about... You know, you talked about the Wild West scene and how I I love the long tracking shot where he's like on top of the train and he's running and he's getting shot at by arrows. And there is a really funny moment in that where he actually gets hit by an arrow. Like he just bend. One of the arrows just straight hits him and bounces off and you can like see his reaction. It was clearly not supposed to happen, um, but he got hit instead. So it's I don't know why they kept that in the movie, but the cinematography is probably the best aspect of this movie it's really cool just to see these wide shots and, and to see these large vistas uh, in color too well that's the scenics part of the cinematography yeah. so that's why
1: I said it's good not great because when you get to the dialogue parts of it they don't do much no. in terms of coverage it's really is just like here's a big room you're just gonna stand in the middle yeah and every you're, character and yeah. you're just gonna talk and then think about the bullfighting sequence they didn't do it was mostly again a huge wide shot of it from far away that they're like, Oh yeah. Content floss
2: did, you know, participate in the bullfighting scene, but it's Suppose like, we added the scene because of him, right? Like when yeah. he got casted because they knew he had bullfighting background. Yeah. And
1: he insisted on doing it. So it's like, okay, but did he actually, cause you really see him like, so up close and it just feels very like, um, like, okay, we have this huge wide camera. Now what do we do with it? You know? And it's, it, it's just a misuse of the technology and, it's great technology, and you know, Tadeo. I mean, that's it's pretty significant to come up with that, and obviously, it stuck through for a little bit. But at the same time, for this movie in particular, it, it doesn't necessarily enhance much besides those vistas, besides those scenics, which are great and uh, definitely beautiful to look at.
2: Um, but it's not enough for the no, story. It's definitely not enough. It's cool to see, you know, the hot air balloon that's become. So synonymous to this film and it's it's not even from the original novel, which I found so interesting because when I think of around the world in 80 days, I always think of like a flying vehicle like the 2004 remake of around the world in 80 days with Steve Coogan and Jackie Chan, which is like, wow. What a crazy combination that is.
1: And there was also a show that came out last year.
2: Uh, the yeah, USA. with the uh, Doctor Who guy, yeah, right? Yeah, David what, uh, Tennant. Yeah, which I'm like, wow, I, a show version of this. Like, that's so interesting that they got the money to do that in 2021. Like,
1: pro- I would hope it's less racist.
2: I, oh, my God. I, <laughs> I was thinking about that, and I'm like, you know, like this – you could easily remake this, and I, like, wonder what it would be. And I think of, like, the 2004 version that is just – Full blown comedy, you know, they really just go, they had a fight in the balls- Statue of Liberty, yeah, movie. exactly. They go balls to the walls and just make it so goofy. And I, I guess that's all you really can do because you can't be as as straightforward as this movie is. You know, they try to have humor here and there, but it really just tries to be more of a and kind of an action adventure kind of comedy film, which is also weird to kind of how to label and, and what genre to put this film in because. I guess action adventure is really the only kind of genre you could put it in.
1: I'm not gonna say action. I'll say adventure.
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: there you go. I'll say
2: adventure. There's very little action scenes. Yeah,
1: there, there, there really isn't much. And I feel like it's it. I feel like we're being so vague about the conversation, but we're not trying to be vague. I there really is not much that happens in this. Like the bullfight, the first hour of this movie, a third of it is that bullfighting sequence. It's almost like 15 minutes long, and it's like okay you know you see a whole crowd of people going oh hey and like every time the content floss like got the bull to run by him and it's like okay like that's great this should have been over five minutes ago five yeah. minutes later you're like okay
2: let's end this it's a lot of scenes of like two, just like walking around and being like oh would you look at that oh Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> like oh, that's it. I'm
1: in, I'm in a Japanese circus right now. <laughs> okay. Like, oh, how
2: did I end up here? Whoa, that's weird. All right, keep on
1: moving. Oh, and I'm going to refer to the guy who I work for as my master. Um, <laughs> oh God, yeah. yeah. Everything, my master, my master, and I'm going to do everything to save this movie and save this whole adventure.
2: <laughs> but it's my master who was in charge of it all. Okay, you can tell that we're running out of steam, but I think before, <laughs> just like that boat <laughs> in the middle of the. El- <laughs> But I think before we wrap up the conversation, we have to talk about our favorite cameo because there's just a stacked cast in terms of the cameos that are in this movie. You mentioned Frank Sinatra earlier. I will start with mine, and that's Buster Keaton. He is the man. He's He's really the myth and the legend, and he plays just a train conductor in this movie while they're going to the west. I think they're leaving like San Francisco at the time or something like that. And funny enough, it just directly references that Buster Keaton was in The General, which is a a film that's kind of has this iconic train sequence that he's kind of trying to uh, build the, the train tracks of a train as it's coming and he's moving and he's like pushed on the front of the train and it's this really amazing action sequence that Buster Keaton does and it's better than any scene in this movie but Buster Keaton was definitely my favorite cameo because you know it's a light-hearted thing it's a tongue-in-cheek thing and I think a lot of the cameos we probably don't really get the references to you know obviously Frank Sinatra we know who he is. We know he's a singer, songwriter, piano player. Like that's pretty straightforward. But if you didn't know, like Buster Keaton was in the General, like the the kind of joke that he's the train conductor, like wouldn't come through as much. So I think there's a lot of aspects of that in this film where it's it's very dated of the time, inside jokes because this actor is you know known for a certain role. But Ben, what's your uh, favorite cameo in the film?
1: Yeah, I, just quickly on that, I feel like a lot of the cameos are you would you have to have known. Not just I don't think it's fit, even fifties pop culture. I think it's like forties and thirties pop sure, culture, yeah. you would have to know. So yeah. I don't think like you would have to be over twenty at that time to like have known who all those people were and to have good context. Otherwise it's so short in their like Buster Keaton is much older than the Buster Keaton that you probably knew, you know, sure. when he was Very a big old, star. Yeah. So it, it it's certainly odd, but I said it before Frank Sinatra's in this movie. It it's kind of a funny cameo because the the camera stays it cuts back to him like a little too much where it's like ah ah here look yeah, at it ah do you notice that you look, look at him a little blue eye popping pop right and then little when he turned and then you turn you're like oh okay like yeah that, that's frank sinatra like yay like clapping along to it <laughs> and uh and actually roger ebert um he said that frank sinatra's brief wordless appearance in this movie is the archetypal celebrity cameo that contributes nothing <laughs> which he contributed <laughs> nothing he just played a piano and you're just like oh yeah Frank Sinatra and then you think to yourself you're like how many other cameos have been in this movie that I did not notice or did not know yeah, because no clue. yeah yeah. And it, it's a little unfortunate and it feels like misuse it's like if you're gonna have all these people in there like let them act let them have fun give them some lines like like and have fog interact with them not just have like past part two like maybe glance at them for a second
2: <laughs> it's hard not to think about Doctor Strange and I won't go too deep into this because I just watched Doctor Strange 2 uh you know the multiverse of madness and it's you know filled with cameos and it's funny that we're now talking about this movie because it's kind of it's doing the same thing and it makes me think about around the world in 80 days and it makes me think about it as a genre it is like a film overall and how these cameos like you said could be 20 year old references and you know the film feels very much like a kid's movie like it feels like it's not meant for adults and it feels like it's meant for like you to just kind of like k- take your kid so he'll shut up and he'll just eat some popcorn and like watch the there movie are no there's no hours. popcorn allowed in these movies yeah actually. talk about that yeah <laughs> yeah there's so
1: mike todd gave specific instructions for his road shows for, for this and uh he didn't allow any popcorn or candy to be served so everyone would just stay in their seats during it's torture e- during each half of the movie you're allowed to leave during the intermission but it, i mean like it, that's so like full of itself and it's like cool they did a whole road show but then there's like this whole book that came out with the roadshow that listed so much stuff <laughs> that it's like how much of this is true how much of this is made up to make it seem like it was bigger than it was and honestly that's all like the history and like a american film institute their whole catalog on this movie is based off of that you know that book they would give out and it's sort of it seems like too
2: much for what actually happened on the on the screen. <laughs> it's ridiculous, and you know what's too much in this movie as well—the goddamn score and the fact that they have to reuse it and play the theme over and oh, over Britannia, and over da, da, again. Da, 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 da. <laughs> So they play that song maybe ten times. They also play like the main theme for this movie, which ended up getting a Bing Crosby to do like the actual lyricisms to and the lyrics and singing, which I actually listened to, and I'm like, wow, this is an amazing. Song, and of course, it's not actually in the movie, it's just you know the notes and the actual music. No. But they just repeat the score over and over and over again and again. It is, it's like they're trying to annoy you in this movie sometimes. I don't get it,
1: yeah, I don't get it either. So, I think that this is the end of the conversation <laughs> on Around the World in 80 Days. So, let's jump into the 29th Academy Awards. <laughs>
0: the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Mr. George Seaton. Fellow members of the Academy, ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome. This year, the motion picture industry is celebrating its 50th birthday, its golden jubilee. It is a genuine milestone because for the first time, movie audiences all over the world have more than a passing interest in these ceremonies. The motion picture has become, as our setting implies, a truly global medium. The flow of film between free countries and the exchange of artists who created them has increased our knowledge of and appreciation for our fellow man. One has only to recall the films nominated in the category of best motion picture to realize that Hollywood is roaming the globe not only for photographic effects, but for story content as well. The king and I related the experiences of an Englishwoman who went to the court of Siam as a tutor and stayed to learn the meaning of affection and understanding. The 10 Commandments told the inspiring story of Moses culminating in the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. Around the world in 80 days was everything the title implied except that that colorful and entertaining journey was accomplished in two hours and 57 minutes. Friendly Persuasion, although of domestic origin, explored a vast region too often bypassed, the human heart. This film gave us the satisfying privilege of living for a brief time with warm, courageous, peaceful human beings of good conscience. And Giant, with power and drama, brought to our eyes and ears that strange, wonderful, exotic land of milk and honey, Texas. And now it is my happy assignment to introduce our Master of Ceremonies for this evening's program. As you may recall, last year the position was filled by that gregarious buffoon, that unpredictable, irrepressible, uninhibited clown, Jerry Lewis. This year our Master of Ceremonies will be that debonair, cultured, sophisticated, entrepreneur of song and whimsy, Mr. Jerry Lewis.
2: The 29th Academy Awards were held on March 27, 1957 at the RKO Pantages Theater in Hollywood and also in NBC Century Theater in New York City. This year's show was hosted by Jerry Lewis in Los Angeles and Celeste Holm in New York City. This was also the first year that all five Best Picture nominees were in color, and the first Oscar telecast to be videotaped for a later broadcast for those network affiliates that didn't want to broadcast this event live.
1: And now we can't even get network affiliates to <laughs> want to air the Oscars, although they'll air the Will Smith slap over and over. Hey, next year it
2: might be even you know, a bigger race than ever for who gets the rights to it, right?
1: Yeah, I guess we'll see when, when we cross that bridge. <laughs> but, um, anyways, let's move on to honorary awards for that year. The Gene Herschel Humanitarian Award went to Y. Frank Freeman. The Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award went to Buddy Adler. And an Academy Honorary Award went to
2: Eddie Cantor for a distinguished service to the film industry. Best special effects went to John P. Fulton for The Ten Commandments. This is Fulton's third and final Academy Award after previously winning in 1946 for the Wonder Man and then 1956 for Bridges at Toko Ri. Fulton's effects included the building of Seti-Drupali's Treasure City, the Burning Bush, the Fiery Hail from a Cloudless Sky, the Angel of Death, the Composites of the Exodus, the Pillar of Fire, the Giving of the Ten Commandments, and the Tour de Force, the Parting of the Red Sea. The Parting of the Red Sea was considered the most difficult special effect ever performed up until that time this effect took about six months of VistaVision filming and combined scenes shots on the shores of the red sea in egypt with scenes filmed at paramount studios in hollywood of a huge water tank split by a u-shaped trowel in which approximately 360,000 gallons of water was released from the sides as well as the filming of a giant waterfall also built on the paramount backlot to create the effect of the walls of the parted sea All of the multiple elements of the shot were then combined in Paul Lepay's optical printer and matte paintings of rocks by Jane Demella, concealed the matte lines between the real elements and the special effect elements. Demille was reluctant to discuss the technical details of the film and how the film was made, especially the optical tricks used in the parting of the Red Sea. It was eventually revealed that footage of the Red Sea was spliced with with film footage run in reverse of water pouring from a large U-shaped trip tanks set up in the studio back lot. So all to say that you know I think it's totally worth going out of your way going to YouTube and looking up this scene of just the seas of the Red Sea parting because I really think it's incredible what they do in the film and and how amazing it still looks to this day and, and how incredible the new 4K transfer of the film is it's amazing.
1: Yeah I uh, actually went to Paramount once and saw the the tank where it is on the ah. back lot where they shot it where they did a Very lot cool. They did a lot of different, you know, water stuff, you know, in in the specific space. But that's where they did the parting the Red Sea. And uh, I know John had just seen this for the first time. I grew up watching the Ten Commandments, you know, growing up Jewish. I think that like come Passover, it was really easy for the parents or grandparents to put it on for all the kids (laughs) during uh, during those family times. And uh, it's it's for all those special effects that John was listening, you know, hearing them and, and not necessarily having watched it. In a few years, but hearing about the angel of death, the pillar of fire, the giving the 10 commandments, like those stand out to me, like those, visually, those are some pretty great moments. And I could tell from as a kid, seeing those early Hollywood or to me, it was early Hollywood um, effects was pretty incredible. So I, uh, I love it. And, and the part of the Red Sea is definitely the tour de force, uh, as you were saying before about it. it it's absolutely incredible. They're able to pull it off. Moving on to best film editing. This one went to around the world in 80 days to Gene Ruggiero and Paul Weatherwax. Ruggiero's only career win after previously being nominated before in the same category for Oklahoma, uh, which is made in 1955. And this is Weatherwax's second career Oscar after previously winning for the naked city in 1948. I put a big how <laughs> this movie won for best film editing. Um, maybe it's just cause
2: it's the most editing cause I handled the most footage. Um, Maybe well, that's why it won. The Ten Commandments is thirty minutes longer. I just watched it. Okay, so, so then wha- there you go.
1: And it has all those crazy special <laughs> effects, which you just went over how they did it,
2: and which no- involves a lot of editing in order to make it look realistic. Yeah, right. A so. lot, a lot of editing, especially if you're putting shit in reverse. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely insane that they had to layer it on top. Yeah, it's like, is it because they were able to like kind of tell the story? And also show us some some of these locations and all of these locations and still making it a, a kind of clear story, even yeah. though it's like so bare bones of a story. I, I have a theory that I'll propose at the, at the end for why maybe the Around the
1: World get, gets more love than like the Ten Commandments.
2: I can't wait. Best costume design color goes to Irene Shiroff for The King and I. This is Shiroff's second out of five career wins in this category after previously winning in 1951 for the 1951 Best Picture winner, An American in Paris. Also of note, we have Miles White, who is the costume designer for Around the World in 80 Days, also nominated here. Anything to note of the costume design? Obviously, big film, a lot of locations, a lot of costumes. I think that's kind of the credit you get, right? It's like,
1: it was a lot. Yeah. They were bright. Yeah, but they didn't win because the King win. and I has better. <laughs> Best Costume Design Black and White went to the solid gold Cadillac to Jean-Louis, this is jean Luis's only career win out of 14 nominations. He worked as head designer for Columbia Pictures from 1944 to 1960, and his most famous work includes Rita Hayworth's black satin strapless dress from Gilda, from which was filmed in 1946. Uh, also, Marlene Dietrich celebrated beaded souffle stage wear for her Cabaret World Tours, as well as the sheer sparkling gown. That Marilyn Monroe wore when she's saying "Happy Birthday, Mr. President" to John F. Kennedy in 1962. Um, I the the name the solid gold Cadillac sparked my like intrigue onto what it was, so I, I I'm putting that on my list for movies
2: I want to check out. That's it, a sweet name, it, the, right? Right? Such a cool name. And also, what a weird coincidence with the gown that Marilyn Monroe wore because Kim Kardashian busted that bad boy out just a couple days ago and wore it herself. Very weird. The exact one? The like, exact dress. I'm surprised you didn't hear about this. Yeah. Oh, well, you know me and the Kardashians. You know how <laughs> up-to-date I oh, am. I'm just surprised you didn't hear about it just because it's directly related to uh, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, it's I, super weird. And also, like, I don't know how Kim Kardashian could ever fit with that you know, ginormous butt she has because... Marilyn Monroe,
1: uh, Kim the, Kardashian, the not only, the same body. Let's just say that. The only Met I follow are the New York Mets.
2: Oh my God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Let's go,
1: Mets. <laughs> Can we talk about the Met
2: now, kidding. <laughs> Best cinematography color goes to Lionel Linden for Around the World in 80 Days. This is Linden's only career win out of three nominations. And he was also nominated for the 1944 Best Picture winner, Going My Way, and I Want to Live from 1958. So, Ben. We talked a little bit about the cinematography. Is it best picture worthy? Is it best cinematography worthy? 30 minutes of it is, <laughs> and that's just cuz of the vistas. <laughs> I I don't
1: know. I mean, you, you I get like again like the big, you know, spectacle of it and maybe that's why, but you have the 10 commandments there. And War and Peace well, and War and Peace has some pretty great stuff in there as well. So I I don't you've seen a lot of movies from this year. That's, that's I, interesting. I well I've talked about you know I've said like 1956 has some big blockbusters. So it's mm-hmm. like why is this one the one that wins?
2: Yeah, I will say in terms of the Ten Commandments versus Around the World in Eighty Days, I think I preferred the the visuals. It's kind of cheating because we have such a big colorful film, and the Ten Commandments is. It's a lot of sand. It's a lot of dull colors. I mean, that's not to kind of go against it. The costume design is very vibrant and bright. And you have these amazing sets that they've built that are really cool to show off. But the cinematography is is very much of Cecibe de Mille, what we've seen in the past. You know, it's very slow. It's it's kind of standard. The camera almost never moves. It's really not too dynamic. Uh, While Around the World was showing me shit that looked like it was... On a GoPro, whether that's something good or, or something uh, you want to see, I think is a bigger question. But seeing shots like, you know, of, of the sea from so far up and seeing, you know, seeing elephants that close and the, ch- the cameras like mounted on the train, it, it felt like some kind of new advancements in cinematography. And it felt like it was pushing the medium forward in terms of how it was kind of trying to tell a story. Moving on to Best Cinematography, Black and White. This one went to Joseph Ruttenberg for
1: Somebody Up There Likes Me. This is Ruttenberg's third Career Academy Award after previously winning for The Great Waltz in 1938 and the 1942 Best Picture winner, Mrs. Miniver. And he would go on to win one more time for the 1958
2: Best Picture winner, Gigi. Best Art Direction, Color, goes to The King and I. Art Direction by Lyle R. Wheeler and John DeCure. Set direction by Walter M. Scott and Paul S. Fox. We also have the nomination here from Around the World in 80 Days. I think it's definitely a worthy nomination. I mean, the amount of sets they had to build, it's, it's pretty elaborate. And, you know, while there's a lot of racism in terms of, like, the portrayals of the, the humans that live in these locations, I thought, you know, while maybe a lot of a cliche looks to these locations, I thought they were still pretty cool and elaborate, and it was pretty impressive art direction. Best Art
1: Direction Black and White went to Somebody Up There Likes Me. Art Direction by Cedric Gibbons and Malcolm Brown. Set Decoration by Edwin B. Willis and F. Cole Gleason. So, this is Cedric Gibbons' 11th and his final Academy Award. pouring out from my homeboy. It's been 29 episodes. We brought him up a bunch. This is the last time we'll really bring up Gibbons' name. Gibbons has the most awards in the Best Art Direction slash Production Design category all time at 11. He also has the most nominations ever in the category at 39. In February 2005, Gibbons was inducted into the Art Directors Hall of Fame and also the iconic Oscar statuette that Gibbons designed, uh, which were first awarded in 1929, are still being presented to uh, winners of the Academy Award ceremonies each year. So Cedric Gibbons' impact has been shown and felt throughout the Academy and film history. And it's pretty you know, we're we're stepping into our own new territory, I think, with movies and to see a name like Cedric Gibbons who again he's not a director, he's not on screen, but to see his influence and winning eleven times his name constantly pop up is pretty remarkable. So
2: yeah, I great look run. at I look at Gibbons and Cedric Gibbons as the perfect example of why we made this podcast. Someone that we probably never heard of before. Now that we've said his name over and over and over, we've really gotten to appreciate the amazing art direction that he's giving us and and how how influential he has been to the overall film industry and especially Hollywood in particular and and the work he's done across the board with so many different directors it's it's absolutely astonishing and definitely take a look at our Instagram worthy podcast where you'll see this week maybe next week a post about Cedric Gibbons best sound recording went to the king and I to Carlton W.
1: Faulkner this is Faulkner's only career win at a five total nominations including a
2: Best Visual Effects nomination for Journey to the Center of the Earth. Best song goes to Que Sera sera, from The Man Who Knew Too Much. Music and lyrics by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans. Que sera, Sera originally appeared in Alfred Hitchcock's film The Man Who Knew Too Much, where it appears diegetically and serves an important role in the film's plot. In the film, Doris Day plays a retired popular singer, Joe McKenna who, along with her husband, played by Jimmy Stewart and son, becomes embroiled in a plot to assassinate a foreign prime minister. After foiling the assassination attempt, Joe and her husband are invited by the prime minister to the embassy, where they believe their young son is being held by conspirators. Joe sits at a piano and plays "K, Sarah Sera, singing loudly in the hopes of reaching her son. Upon hearing his mother play the familiar song, Joe's son whistles along, allowing Joe's husband to find and rescue the boy, just before he was about to be murdered by the conspirators to the assassination attempt. So there's not a better time to listen to K Seurat, Seurat.
3: That's my mother's voice! That's my mother singing! What? Are you sure, Hank? Are you quite sure? That's sure I'm not! What are you doing here? Should I paint pictures? Should I sing songs? This was her wise. Okay, shall I tell whatever will be. Hank, can you whistle that song? I guess so. Then go on. Whistle it. Whistle it as loud as you can. What my sweetheart said ever will be, will be the future's not ours to see. Que said sera, sera, what will be, will be.
1: Best scoring of
2: a musical picture goes to The King and I, to Alfred Newman and Ken Darby. Best music score of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Victor Young for Around the World in 80 Days. This is Young's only career win out of 22 nominations. His family actually donated all of his artifacts and memorabilia including this Oscar to the Brandeis University where they are still housed today. Yeah, Victor
1: Young got this award uh, posthumously. He had died before the award was uh, given out, so unfortunately he didn't get to really receive it, but out of 22 nominations getting the win i won't sour (laughs) on around the world in 80 days for this win moving on to best short subject cartoons this one goes
2: to magoo's puddle jumper best live action short subject two reel goes to the bespoke overcoat best live action short subject one reel goes to crashing the water barrier best documentary short subject goes to the true story of the civil war best documentary feature
1: Goes to The Silent World. This movie was directed by Jacques Cousteau. The film also won the Palme d'Or at the 1956 Cannes Film Festival. Cousteau remained the only person to win a Palme d'Or for a documentary film until Michael Moore won the award
2: in 2004 for Fahrenheit 9-11. Best Foreign Language Film goes to La Strada, which is an Italian film. This year, the Best International Feature Film was introduced as a competitive category for the first time instead of only a Special Achievement Award. Yeah, so notably
1: this category has been recently renamed the Best International Feature Film, but at the time it was still Best Foreign Language. So great that we are getting more uh, international films being honored and they're starting to honor it as an actual competitive category. But obviously it took until the 92nd Academy Awards for any of them to truly be recognized the way *The Parasite was recognized moving on to best story this one goes to the brave one to Dalton Trumbo so the best original story category had two interesting quirks this year first the Oscar for the brave one was awarded to Robert Rich which was a pseudonym for Dalton Trumbo who was blacklisted at the time and thus unable to receive credit under his own name second Edward Burns and an Elwood Ullman respectfully withdrew their own names and nomination. They were aware that voters had probably mistaken their Bowery Boys film with the 1956 MGM musical of the same name starring Bing Crosby, Grace Kelly, and Frank Sinatra, which itself was based on the Philadelphia story. So this nomination was not included on the final ballot. And this is also the last year that the Best Story Award would be awarded. So rest in peace to this useless category. But yeah, can you imagine that someone today was like, um, that's not my movie that got nominated.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And after the last couple of years, wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened. Best screenplay adapted goes to James Poe, John Farrow, and SJ Perelman based on the novel by Jules Verne for Around the World in 80 Days. This is Poe, Farrow, and Perelman's first and only career Oscar win. And funny enough, screenwriter S.J. Perelman actually didn't attend the Academy Award ceremony, but someone came and gave his acceptance speech for him. So let's take a little listen to that.
3: And Hermione Gingo will accept the award for Mr. Perelman. Congratulations. Thank you. Hi. I'm very proud to receive this objet d'art on behalf of Mr. Perlman, who writes. He cannot be here for a variety of reasons, all of them spicy. (laughs) He's dumbfounded, absolutely flummoxed, He never expected any recognition for writing around the world in 80 days. (laughs) And, in fact, only did so on the express understanding that the film would never be shown. (laughs) He hopes he will be able to live up to it, or rather, live it up, and he says, bless you all.
1: Best Screenplay Original went to The Red Balloon to Albert LaMaurice. This film also won the Palme d'Or for short films at the 1956 Cannes Film Festival. It also became popular with children and educators. It is the only short film to win the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. Lamarose's other great accomplishment was the creation of the board game Risk in 1957. And actually, upon
2: researching and, and looking at this movie... I watched this movie in my French class. <laughs> I was going to say, if you've seen this movie or not, yeah. that, that makes sense in a French class, definitely. Yeah, I watched my
1: French class, and I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> it was just a <laughs> red balloon. Um, as you can
2: tell, my French has totally stuck with me. Yeah, yeah. So you, I'm assuming you didn't watch it with subtitles then. It was just to get the, the language going, right? Oh, yeah, I, I just remember seeing a big red balloon. Because <laughs> I actually watched this. This is an amazing short film, and it's one of those short films where there's like, almost no dialogue, except for like balloon which are like all the characters and their cute fucking accents are like balloon balloon. So I always say balloon that way now because watching this film in in college, we would always just like goof around and say that, but it actually is a really adorable movie. And I definitely highly recommend anyone to, to pause the podcast for a second and just go give it a watch. It's like a 15 minute short film about a boy who's just trying to get his red balloon and it's adorable and it's whimsical and it's magical. It's everything a, a good, you know, short film should be. Best Supporting Actress goes to Dorothy Malone for Written on the Wind as Marley Hadley. Malone transformed herself into a platinum blonde and shred her good girl image when she co-starred with Rock Hudson, Lauren Bacall, and Robert Stack in director Douglas Shirk's drama Written on the Wind. Her portrayal of the dipso-nymphomaniac daughter of a Texas oil baron won her the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Malone had been in Hollywood since she was 18 and signed two studio contracts in her career with RKO and Warner Brothers until becoming a freelancer in the 1950s. Best Supporting Actor went to Anthony Quinn for Lust for Life as Paul Gagan. This is Anthony
1: Quinn's second and final Academy Award out of four total nominations, and he previously won
2: Best Supporting Actor for Viva Zapata from 1953. Best Actress goes to Ingrid Bergman for Anastasia as Anna Korov. This is Bergman's second of 3 career Academy Awards, and Bergman previously won for Gaslight in 1944, and this is her second and final in the best actress category. It is also her first nomination in the category since 1948 for Joan of Arc. This film marked Bergman's return to working for a Hollywood studio after several years of working in Italy with her husband Roberto Rossellini. Best Actor goes to Yul Brenner for The King and I as King
1: Mongkut of Siam. This is Brenner's only career Oscar win and nomination. He also won the Tony Award the same year for the Broadway production of The King and I. Brenner also starred that year in The Ten Commandments and Anastasia. All three roles awarded him the National Board of Review for Best Actor. Brenner is one of only 10 people who have won both a Tony and Academy Award for the same role. He played the role of King Mongkut of Siam 4,625 times on stage and became known for his shaved head, which he maintained as a personal trademark long after adopting it for the King and I, it was only Brenner's second film appearance following his debut in the B movie thriller port of New York from 1949 in which he played a narcotics dealer. So I, I was saying to John before the podcast, and you know, think of someone who's been in three blockbusters of the same year and won an Oscar. It's actually a pretty remarkable feat. And, uh, Pretty crazy that it, it even happened. Um I've seen it have you seen The King and I? No. oh uh, it, it's a it's a it's a good movie, it's a great musical, actually. Um I'm very, very fond of that one. Watched that a lot as a kid. I don't know why, but just did. That's um, so random. Yeah, it's very I totally nineteen fifty-six man. And then also uh James Dean was uh got a posthumous nomination for his role in giant So after his death in a car crash in September of 1955, Dean became the first actor to receive a posthumous Oscar nomination for his role in East of Eden. Upon receiving the second nomination for his role in giant uh, for this year, Dean became the only act actor to have had two posthumous acting nominations. So I don't think, I hope we never have to see that again. That would just be sad, but yeah, um, I guess James Dean getting the pretty remarkable, you know, feat
2: right there, but still it's sad that he got that feat. Not seeing anything from around the world in 80 days, nope. though. Where's Cotton Floss? You know. Shirley MacLaine? I mean, she gave... Oh, wait, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. no. Well, if you were in India in 1960,
1: you would have no idea she was even in the
2: movie. <laughs> Best Director goes to George Stevens for Giant. This is Stevens' second and final Best Director Award, and he previously won for A Place in the Sun from 1951, and he also received the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award in nineteen. 19- 53 ben have you seen giant no but that is to. that is the one film this year that we're both like ooh, we're eager to watch it you know a big another big long epic film this time a western and you got james dean little cowboy action going on there rock hudson come on what's not to love there i can't wait to watch that and finally moving on to
1: best motion picture the nominees are seven sam oh wait that Sam <laughs> Samurai did not get a nomination. All right. Nominations are the searchers. Oh, wait. Sorry. Academy fucked up there. Did not include the searchers or the seven samurai nominations. Silly me. So the nominations for the 1956 best motion picture award are the Ten Commandments, The King and I, Giant and Friendly Persuasion, and of course, our winner Around the World in 80 Days produced by Mike Todd. Around the World in 80 Days became the sixth film to win best picture without any acting nominations this is also the first year that all five best picture nominees were in color um so i want i've kind of teased it a little bit before about why maybe the uh the ten commandments didn't win this well if you think back to 1952 when um when the greatest show on earth won for Cecil b demille it was at that time that people thought demille might have been you know declining and they didn't think he was actually going to really make another movie, another big movie again, so they gave the greatest show on earth all this love and attention for the best picture. But if they had just waited a few more years, like four more years, they would have had the great opportunity to do it and I I I feel personally upon looking at it and seeing how the trends of voting and who wins it and, and how it's awarded, if they didn't give Demille that award in fifty two, maybe if they gave it to I don't know, a high noon at that time. Crazy to think about Um, that. Maybe we would have been talking about the Ten Commandments in this episode.
2: Yeah, there's another alternate reality where that happened. And it is quite the epic at three hours and 34 minutes, I think it is. And I watched it for the first time yesterday. And I got to say the 4K restoration of that movie is absolutely stunning. It may be like one of the best, you know, older 50 plus year old transfers that i've ever seen on disc and it was just absolutely popped off the screen while it was not my favorite movie i mean we're talking about the story of moses to be honest it's not the most engaging material uh, oh, wait, well, to me personally okay. but <laughs> okay sure there's a pillar of fire and the red sea splits it is quite a goofy movie and it's it's very dated in terms of they're very much going for this kind of Shakespearean dialogue, but it's kind of mixed in with fifties and, and the kind of last remaining aspects of, uh, of Hollywood from the forties. So it has like a real dated feel to it, but what's not dated. There's the amazing special effects that we talked about and Charleston Heston is amazing performance. And it's just blows me away thinking about this is the same actor uh, from the greatest show on earth because he was so lousy in that movie with The Ten Commandments, though, I mean, it's his film. He's in almost every scene. He really steals it. And it's really amazing to see his transformation throughout that film. So I totally think it's a worthy nomination. Whether it's a worthy win, I feel like I really got to watch Giant to know for sure. Obviously, I think The Ten Commandments is a is a definitely a better film than Around the World in the 80 Days. But. but we also had, like I
1: said, Seven Samurai, which, okay, I get it. If Seven Samurai, you don't, it's an international film. It's pushing it At the it, time every, yeah. and For the time It's pushing it I mean Hey listen th- There are a lot of White Egyptians In this uh, Ten Commandments <laughs> Along you with mean the, everyone <laughs> Yeah And then along With all the racism Around the world In 80 days But then he also The Searchers I'm not going to say like that's the most Perfect political movie Because there is Some racist aspects To that But to not have Any nominations That year for that movie Like that yeah, movie That's I, insane I love that movie it, I love that movie too It, it looks great I, I actually watched it Recently um, And i i i'm shocked that, that it received no nominations uh i wanted like a western binge and just watch a bunch of that one i was just like this is yeah. great like how can it's it, absurd yeah for
2: not even like john ford for getting a nom for not even you know like to john wayne john get, wayne like, like he has an amazing performance in that movie and the cinematography in it is i mean if you want to talk about the american west my god like that oh, yeah that one really showcases it so one of the best opening and final shots in a movie oh. ever it's one of my favorite movies oh, honestly so ever big. I absolutely love The Searchers and that would be my best picture and if we're
1: talking about like widescreen format like that's huge like, yeah I don't need the Cinerama thing to really be immersed into a movie you know like we, we've talked about maybe not on the podcast but to like friends of ours like we like to go see movies in Dolby Cinema and that just gives you a better sound experience than going to an IMAX screening which is just a huge screen I, I think, and I've said it before, that having better sound is way more important than having a humongous screen that you can barely even see the whole thing and you're, you know, in any way you're looking at it. So, um, but I digress. So let's get in some stats and figures about Around the World in 80 Days. So currently, it holds a 69% on Rotten Tomatoes. Average rating is a 5.9. The top critic percentage gave it a 67 with an average rating of 6.9. The audience score is a 57% average score of 3.4 out of 5 imdb gives it a 6.8 metacritic didn't even give it the time of day and it won five total oscars out of eight nominations
2: so john what did you give around the world in 80 days i gave around the world in 80 days a 55 out of 100 and while that may seem pretty high for basically how we've talked about it i try to kind of go off of the previous films that we've gone kind of kind of gone through and ranked and when I look at other films like Simran from 1930 it's it's at a 50 and then we got 1937 the life of Emile Zola at 55 so I was kind of feeling pretty close to the, that number there at a 55 it, it's kind of like this weird middle of the road where it has like some interesting aspects when it comes to the way the film is is created and the cinematography and all the cool sets and and just kind of how it was pushing forward the medium of of what a movie could be and I imagine as a kid this would really kind of be such a fun time to go and see all over the world and see all these crazy exotic locations so I'm really kind of giving it that perspective of looking back at it in time and and while I didn't really love the story because it's so bare bones it's almost like not non-existent I think the the technical merits kind of pull it up for me and give it a 55 but Ben what would you give around the world in 80 days Gave Around the World in 80 Days a solid uh, 30. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I really
1: <laughs> I really don't have many good things to say. The 30, <laughs> I think, is actually very generous. Uh, the It's my third lowest rated movie on the entire Best Picture list. So the Broadway Melody comes up at a close second at a 25. And my number one, we have still yet to get to. But we will get there actually fairly soon. But uh, a 30... I mean, there's no plot. There's no story. There's no characters, really. The 30 just goes to the merits of, you know, the the cinematography aspects of it, which which is decent and good. It, you know, I think like that's, that's what's deserving of it. I think the costumes and, and being able to put together such a large crew and dealing with so many extras is, is a lot to handle. So I can definitely give it compliments for that. But by no means do I think this movie is anywhere close to any of the other movies we have talked about again it makes movies like the greatest show on earth seem much better it makes you know all the king's men seem like a fantastic movie the Gentlemen's agreement like those actually have plot that we were able to talk about and yeah we were critical of it but we still were able to have a, a healthy conversation about it this one I feel bad like most of my comments are just like it's not good it's, <laughs> a, it's just not fun or not good to talk about so not a fan gave it a 30 which actually doesn't bring our scores down too much so John Right now you're at a 72, and right now I'm at a 75 point, and for rounding purposes, 75.8. So, John, let's answer that question. Is Around the World in 80 Days
2: worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1956? Unfortunately, I'm going to say no. If I had to pick something, it would be The Searchers. I think it's a quite amazing film that, that still really holds up today. Yeah, and I'm going to have to just say no too.
1: at I, I would have picked any of the other movies. <laughs> You're like literally any of the other Literally ones. any of the other ones. You're like
2: Giant. I haven't even seen it. I haven't even it. seen <laughs> it. The solid gold <laughs> Cadillac. I haven't even seen it. Somebody that's up it. there likes
1: me. I like and, and that's another thing is like you think about like the King and I like won so many awards that year, won Best Actor, and won all these technical awards that why didn't that one win? Why why wasn't that one the big, you know, spectacle? Why you know, especially when you have a guy like Joel Berner being in three huge movies from that year, it really makes it, I really can't find a good argument for why this movie was so great, like why Around the World in Eighty Days was so revered and so liked. It, it's really hard, and like, and I think when you look at like a review from Variety from that from uh, 1956, it's so glowing and, and loves it so much. It's like, who paid you to like say all this stuff? Because it really doesn't match up. And then when you look at like, I you know we talk about stats all the time. Like Rotten Tomatoes is probably one of the least helpful ways to actually you know figure out what a film is worth in terms of its rating because it takes into account from reviews from the time it was released which are much more glowing and much more praising of it than versus a modern lens which is like this really has nothing no merits to it so yeah i just it's really low for me i um i really don't have much more to say of anything it's good Um, I'm just happy really to say like this is the end John any uh (laughs) any last minute thoughts on around the world in 80 days or actually want to talk about the searchers for a little bit (laughs) this is the end this is the end so thank you for listening I'm Ben and I'm John and And this this is worthy
0: Worthy. good heavens Ralph! why wait any longer he's lost the wager he has 20 times over once he missed his transatlantic connection Steady on, chaps. Play the game. Remember, we're all British gentlemen. There's still 14 seconds to go. My dear Rafe, the man's not superhuman. What do you expect him to do? Pop down the chimney like Santa Claus? (laughs) I haven't the least idea. I only know that Phileas Fogg is the most punctual man alive. Well, gentlemen, here I am. I trust that I've not kept you waiting. Hello Fog. Hello Fog. Hello, Fog.
3: Hello, Fog. Hello, Fog. Great Caesar's ghost, a woman in the club.
0: My dear, I must ask you to leave these precincts at once. No woman has ever set foot in the club.
3: Why not?
2: Because that could spell the end of the British Empire.
0: This is
1: thanks for listening to worthy the breakdown of every best picture winner from past to present you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts check us out on instagram at worthy podcast on twitter at worthy pod and on facebook at worthy podcast any inquiries can be submitted to worthy submissions at gmail.com again that's worthy submissions at gmail.com